Amy Webb of the Future Today Institute explains her Tech Trends report and the implications for chief information officers. We've built uh, a system that is somewhat heuristic and somewhat relies on NLP and AI that allows us to go very, very broad. And so we do this in a very methodical way. We start with 11 macro forces where we see most change emanating because no one entity has total control. But we are doing all kinds of scraping and pattern recognition and just trying to figure out what is blipping up. Because what I see happening too often, um, especially with CISOs and CIOs, is that you, you get tunnel focus. So you, you or tunnel vision, which I totally understand. Oops, I totally understand. Um, it's been a rough 18 months. <laughs> There's been a lot of uncertainty. You are, are, are the unsung heroes that never get the thanks that you deserve. I mean, let's face it, none of the working from home would have happened without you. Um, but I totally get you're like, you're under this pressure to make decisions fast, to prevent the next solar winds, to do you know, all of these things. So what winds up happening is all the stuff that's happening on the periphery, which will, may not have an impact on you in the next 12 months, but could totally shape your future. In the next three to five years, you put off. And so what I think is that if we've, you know, at least in one moment in time, we have everything in one spot so that you can look across all of the different trends, you know, it, it will help change your perspective. Um, and being able to, to have sort of a reperception of the signals that exist are really important for you going forward. We wound up with over a thousand uh, weak and strong signals that we had to do something with. Amy, when you, when you talk about weak and strong signals, what do you mean? These are indications that change is afoot. So a weak signal would be um, an example of a new technology. Maybe it's a one-off. Uh, you don't see any other partners like it in the field. I would say a couple of years ago, sleep tech would have been a weak, weak signal. There were a couple of players messing around with ways to optimize your sleep. Um, that is a trend now. It met the right criteria. We saw enough movement in the marketplace. We can calculate the trajectory of it. Um, but typically it begins as sort of blips on the fringe, one-offs, seeming outliers. Um, strong signals are more mature. Um, there are more examples. There's more data. Or it's like a big, obvious, hey, look at this thing. Um, and they alone don't tell us what the future looks like. but. Uh, if they meet certain criteria and we determine that they are trends that are likely to take some shape over time, then we start tracking them much more seriously. So essentially you're looking for at the prevalence of technology, what's being used, what are the products that are out there, the uptake, things like that? Well, it's not just products. I mean, we've got, so there were, there were so many signals this year, we wound up with more than 500 trends, which we did not do just for fun. Uh, it was hell trying to put this thing together. So we actually split the report into 12 separate volumes um, and then published an additional volume that it shows everybody how we did the work. So the AI volume of the report um, doesn't really talk about AI products as much as it does the underlying factors. So we're trying to get to sort of primary source change. Um, so this would be uh, research that we see changing um, how things work or significant shifts in the workforce, things like that. What did you come across as being uh, 
most important that we need to be aware of? And what are some of the ones that are that we should be aware of that maybe we're not aware of? There are 12 volumes. They each cover a different set of themes and topics. Um, I think in the AI volume, one thing that really took me by surprise, and that's one of my, my team and I all research different areas. So AI is an area that I cover. Um, I came across some really interesting research showing the number of people enrolling in one of Stanford's uh, most popular NLP classes. Um, And it's like 10x. The numbers shot way up. But then I looked at the number of papers that were accepted over the past three years at uh, Neural IPS, which used to be called NIPS for people who are in the, in the know, um, which is like the big, huge annual conference on AI that, that attracts top talent. And you want, if, that's, if you're a researcher, you want to get your paper accepted here. So here's what's interesting. Um, the number of people coming out of arguably one of the best programs in the United States, right? The number of enrollees, people coming out super high, but the number of papers accepted at this conference, um, is indexing high in China, meaning, uh, we've got way more people coming out of our system, but as a percentage overall, way fewer papers. Uh, and to me, that's a pretty interesting, strong signal about, um, you know, because what happens in papers becomes what happens in uh, products, you know, and elsewhere. So, so to me, that was just a really, really interesting change in dynamics. Um, I would say in the new realities volume, uh, every, AR, AR and VR get both conflated, which is wrong because they're completely different technologies, and they hog the spotlight. There's actually a whole bunch of other types of realities that are far more impactful in some ways and more interesting. So there's something called diminished reality, um, which, Michael, you probably are already familiar with. It's noise-canceling headphones, right? Um, but that same technology yep, is coming to physical spaces. So instead of a noise-canceling headphone, imagine a noise-canceling window with that technology built in that totally changes our urban landscapes, our soundscapes, things like that. Um, and then there's assistive technology. So it's kind of a bridge. And I think especially for those in the enterprise, I think everybody is drastically underestimating how, how much of an impact um, assistive glasses are going to have on everyday life. So these are glasses just like what I'm wearing that have some AR functionality, but they're more assistive in nature, meaning they've got both audio and visual. They provide you with information to help you move throughout their, your day. Um, and, and they do lots of other things like take your health information. Um, so, so things like that, I think, are interesting. There's also um, prescription strength gaming. So the, last summer, the FDA approved a video game that you have to have a prescription in order to play. It's actually not the only one. So that signals a shift in how I, I think that we have a whole volume on health that's really interesting. Um, and I think we've seen a lot over the past. 12 months that indicates sharply different path w- paths forward now in health and health tech. Amy, there are all of these technologies and signals that you and your team have covered really extensively. As someone in the enterprise, how should we relate to this? It's so it's so confusing. And we have to write and we have to we have to place our bets and make our investments. 
and there are millions of dollars at stake potentially. So what do we do? Yes, I'm aware of that because uh, we are oftentimes the people helping some of these organizations make those decisions. So I, I understand that many of you are really focused on what I would consider to be the extreme near term, so the next year or two years. But you must make your decisions in this very near-term horizon with an eye on the mid-horizon and, and farther horizon. Um, because if you don't, you have more than just extensibility to worry about. I mean, I think that's one of the key challenges in these enormous corporations. You want to place your bet on the right horse. Otherwise, you, you know, I can give you a quick, great example. So there's a mid-size, I would say, hospital system that uh, years ago went with an EHR, an electronic health record system. And I know that their tech team and their CIO, you know, there was a lot of consternation about, around which, which one to pick because at that point, I think there were probably three or four different competing systems. As all of you know, over time, there's consolidation and basically you wind up with, you know, two or three players. Um, and I think the most important thing is that Companies make these decisions based on cost a lot of times, uh, which I get because technology, if you're not in the field, feels like this place where you can scrimp and save a little bit. Um, the problem, of course, is if you back the wrong horse and that company that you, know, you go with the cheapest company, um, maybe they're not the ones that are going to put the resources into continuing to maintain whatever that product is. So in this case, the hospital, you know, a couple of years later, that company kind of closed its doors and the system that they built wasn't easily portable into another system. And there was nobody like it was super kludgy. And, you know, they had they had two really robust EHRs to choose from, but somebody was going to have to manually. There was no easy way to extract all that data and port it into another one. Um, so how do you make these decisions then in a smarter way? Part of this is obviously really tracking what's happening. And I don't think most organizations are dedicating enough resources to really doing that. Um, but you have to look outside because, you know, who, if, if, we, if we could get a time machine and go back three years and say, hey, there's going to be a global virus, a pandemic, three years from now, that is going to be horrible, but also is going to lead to brand new ransomware attacks that just nobody's ever thought of before. Like everybody would have been like global pandemic, new virus. Come on, give me a break. But you, you have to be prepared for these kinds of things. So ask questions like how could whatever this thing is that I've just heard about or whatever this seemingly unrelated trend, how could this make us vulnerable? Maybe not today, but in the near future. Or how might this make our constituents vulnerable, our partners vulnerable? Um, how does this thing that I've just heard about challenge our current thinking uh, about our strategy or our operations? And then hopefully, you know, where does this create new opportunities for us? Um, and what tangible next step would we have to take in order to understand this thing and all of its dimensions better? The problem is most companies are not asking those questions and they're also not looking at the kinds of new material that would elicit those questions. We are confronted with so many different options, so many different 
confusing signals to use your term. And at the same time, to address the point you just raised, we have a, a short-term time horizon because that's how we are measured. And so how do we navigate this and how do we ask these kind of questions? Okay, where are we vulnerable? But you have five to 500 different signals, technologies that you've studied. We can't look at all of those and ask those questions. The answer is though you, you should be. Um, you know, we've got, you sort of know the usual suspects. You have to go like one or two clicks outside of those usual suspects or better yet, I can't tell you how many organizations, I will tell you one, but I can't tell you who it is because it, it is, it would be bad. There's a, let's just say there's an enormous agency out there um, that, wh whose managers I was in a conversation with, who said that they knew lots about AI. And I said, okay, that's great. What do you know? Like, what are you, what are you looking at? What are you, what are you guys doing? And I heard sort of top level, um, buzzy sounding language repeated back. And it, it was pretty clear to me that they really know. Uh, and that's fine because these are um, senior executives and they don't need to be on the weeds in this stuff. So I said, okay, okay. Who are the people in the organization whose charge it is to, to really be paying attention to this? And what latitude do they have to go out and look for new information? They didn't know. Okay. Well, who are, you, who are your PhDs? Who are your PhDs that have something having to do with any, anything within the AI umbrella. Um, and they didn't know that either. And I said, listen, if, if I ask those exact same questions of Amazon, uh, Amazon would have the answers, but also Amazon would be able to tell me how many economists, like economics PhDs they have and how many design thinking people they have and, and how many, you know, synthetic biologists they have. And Amazon is a marketplace. Amazon, right? Amazon Web Services is whatever. It's a cloud. What do they need biologists for? And, and this is my point, right? My point is that the world is complex. Um, we are all facing deep uncertainty. And I, and I don't know of many organizations that are intentionally looking far enough outside of what they do to really make a dent, to, to position themselves so they're making a dent in, in their futures. They're just not. They're, they're being dragged forward by somebody else. We have an interesting question that's come up on Twitter, and this is from Matt Carrasco. And he says, regarding healthcare, since you were just talking about that, how would you go about analyzing the near-term and long-term implications for the Six massive shift, $600 billion in spending across your probable, plausible, and possibly fringe scenarios? This is what we would call an inflection. So we're always looking for pattern. I'm always looking for patterns. Where are there uh, contradictions, inflections, changes in practices, things like that? So obviously, this is a huge inflection. And typically, inflections tend to have lots of next-order impacts. So. Some of that spending has gone to improving uh, digital work streams and workflows within the healthcare space. Um, you know, I, I don't know how to impress this enough upon people so that it, it makes sense. Um, the emergence of a messenger RNA vaccine, which is not brand new, um, this is something that has been many, many years 
in the making because the, the companies that came to market with this first um, were looking at that very same technology for cancer. Um, and part of the problem this entire time has been regulatory approval and the amount of time that it takes, because it's different. This is not an attenuated um, virus that's being shot into us. This is a, a new kind of technology that enables the body to self-heal. The fact that that got regulatory approval, even if it was in this emergency way, now clears the path for lots of other use cases. And messenger RNA is not you know, a panacea for everything, but it does totally shift the, finally, um, how, how we can be thinking about pharmaceuticals. So this, you know, and, and how, what, why does that matter if you're not in pharma? Because as a percentage of GDP in the United States, the pharmaceutical industry is a big player. Um, so there are lots of, and that's, again, that explains the situation that we're in right now. My job became much, much harder December of 2019 uh, when, when the virus was first emerging that we knew of. Um, so anyhow, I would say uh, in the very near term, stuff you already know, more telehealth, more telemedicine, more options, more flexibility, probably bigger headaches for organizations that were not set up to do that. And certainly encryption and ransomware and other security challenges on the horizon. But in the long term, I mean, in the long term, we're looking at a completely different approach, which I think is a good thing um, to health and wellness. We're probably looking at I mean, the long-term effects of this increase longevity, um, giving our, you know, the body, having the body be able to self-heal in more ways, lots more preventative medicine, probably many more doctor-free exams, meaning you will always know what your levels are uh, without ever having to go to a diagnostic center to get drug, blood drawn and things like that. So, Well, we have another interesting question from Twitter. This is from Arslan Khan, who is a longtime listener. And thanks, Arslan. You always ask the best questions. And he makes the point that large companies may have the budget to think about future risks and challenges and do this kind of analysis that you were just describing, Amy, but smaller companies don't. And so therefore, what should smaller businesses do? So our work is open source for a reason. Um, I, I don't agree with, with that assumption, and I hear it a lot. You know, we're just not a big enough company. We just don't have the resources. We just don't have the budget. Um, and this is really much more about perception than it is about um, a P&L. So, so here's one thing that every single person who is listening can do for the next week that will orient you more toward a, an expansive view. Um, and this is actually the first homework that I assigned to my MBA class at Stern every, every time I teach. So here's what it is. Starting tonight and for the next week, do something different every day. It can be small. Um, it can be something as silly as sleeping on the other side of the bed, uh, which I know is actually kind of a big deal for some people, um, or eating breakfast for dinner. Do something different every day, and your objective is to notice if you are seeing things differently as a result, what we're doing is forcing your brain into a new neural pathway. That costs no money. All it does is ask you to break free of the patterns that you're used to following so that you can start to establish new ways to see the world differently um, so that you can take in signal data differently. That is a minimum viable pathway to thinking more like a futurist. Now, obviously, it scales up from there. But, um, but there are lots of things that, 
every business could be doing. And some of this is just asking better questions in a more strategic way. And don't hate me for saying this, everybody who's listening, but I, I find more resistance out of CIOs and CISOs than I do in other, <laughs> other parts of organizations. I totally get it. You know, you, you guys have to, there's a lot of risk riding on your shoulders. Um, but sometimes that can almost be, you know, an albatross. And um, if you can allow yourself to think a little bit more broadly, um, even if you are the world's greatest process thinker, I can assure you that you're going to, you know, you'll be more, a more valuable asset to your organization because you'll have both sets of skills. You'll be a good, strong process thinker. Um, you will keep that organization running in, a, in the way that it needs to be, but you'll also have a more creative, expansive mindset in, in doing that. Is this a tension between thinking about innovation versus efficiency? Yeah, I know a lot of the stuff just sounds squishy. I totally get it. Um, I'll go back, back to Pierre Vac for just a moment. So this was the guy in the 70s who was at Shell. Shell in the 1970s, right? It's full of like men in suits. Uh, doing big strategic thinking. And here comes Pierre, um, who's like a super into Eastern philosophy and, uh, you know, studying world religions. I mean, he's like a, he's like, no, he, nobody can grok him right inside this organization. And yet um, he was able to prove that adjusting some of how you think uh, can lead to extraordinary discoveries. Um, and I guess what I would say is, I know that there is a tension between immediate term and longer term, innovation and execution. Those tensions exist. I, I get that. Um, I think the people who are our are, are greatest future thinkers and some of the organizations that do the best job um, continuing to make their markets and to move forward actually operate in the middle of those two. Right, they are dynamic. They're flexible. Um, they are squishy in how they think. My my favorite example. I'm going to ask you this question, Michael. See if you know the answer. So, when I talk about the way that I describe companies uh, is as pathfinders and, and bystanders. A pathfinder company is positioned really well. It's got the right culture. It can be tiny. It can be huge. Um, they, they always like, no matter what disruption comes, they are seemingly always prepared and not are they always prepared. Um, they're also so far ahead of everybody else that they're making the market. What they're doing has, has you know, the decisions they make, um, they trickle down to everybody else. So my favorite Pathfinder company is Nintendo. Michael, any idea when Nintendo was founded? Gee, they've been around for a very long time, haven't they? I, I don't know the year, but it's been, God, they've been through so many different generations. Yeah. So many different consoles, right. So that's my favorite question to ask executives. When was Nintendo founded? And almost universally, I get the same kind of answer. Like, oh yeah, they've been around for a while, like since the 80s, right? You know, Mario, Donkey Kong. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely right. The 80s, the 1880s. Nintendo <laughs> Nintendo was founded uh, before automobiles were on the roads, right? So everybody's always shocked when they hear that. And Nintendo originally was a was a company that made something called Hanafuda playing cards. I used to live in Japan. I lived there for many years. Um, these are cards that are made out of like a specialized paper. 
you required special inks. So there was this entire value chain built around this company and this game. And at some point, and they were very expensive, right? But at some point, you've got the radio, you've got electricity and homes, you've got a television set. And what was so smart about what this company continued to do was that they were always thinking not about the next two years of our market and what the segment looks like and who our competitors are. Yes, they were paying attention to that while at the same time thinking about, hey, this television thing, you know, this is our competitor, right? And what, what's the, as, as it's emerging and nobody else is paying attention to it because it's huge and clunky and expensive and there wasn't a lot of programming, it was mostly news. Nintendo was looking at this thing thinking 10 years from now, this is gonna cause us to go out of business. They just kept doing that over and over again. So what do we do? They help invent the console. Um, that you can plug into the television set to play the game. And everybody's getting excited about games. And what are they doing? Well, they're, they're thinking again ahead. And they're noticing that people are no longer staying in their homes. There's this thing called the shopping mall. And like, it seems like teenagers might be spending more time in the shopping mall. So what do they do? They take this game that everybody's used to sitting down to, and playing, and they create a stand-up machine that you have to pay. You have to put a quarter in in order to play and invent the video arcade. Anyhow, so here we are in the year 2021. Um, they're not the biggest company. They're not the biggest gaming company. They're not like EVE Online. They're not reinventing um, the mechanics, but they are still around. They're doing, they've got very healthy margins. Um, and they just, what did they just launch? They just launched an augmented reality theme park. Okay. And we don't have a lot of augmented reality yet. So just, it's, it's a good example because this is a company that, that like York, all of your companies has to make decisions in the very near term, but they do that while thinking about where that future market is going to go. That's a fascinating example. And I can tell you one thing, Nintendo is now high on my list to pursue uh, to be on CXO Talk because I've interviewed many companies, senior execs from many companies that were started in the 19th century or early in the 20th century. And of course, they're all tremendous innovators because clearly they've adapted. Right. I mean, Nintendo shouldn't, if you stop and think about it, this company shouldn't exist. They've been through two world wars, uh, Japanese economic collapse. Um, you know, the advent of the movie theater, of the television set, over and over and over again, this company should have, should have been killed, right, by all of these different things, and they weren't. And by the way, they still make those playing cards. So they never pivoted. They just evolved. So what is it about Nintendo that made this possible? So again, this has to do with some of what we've been talking about and what I would, you know, what I would call the hallmark of a, of a Pathfinder company they're asking really challenging questions all the time for the purpose of challenging the status quo. So I walk into a lot of organizations and I'm almost always dealing with executive management. And, you know, way too many times I hear people say, well, we're already doing that. Great. I'm happy you feel confident that you are already doing like you're not, you know, um, but but having the confidence and the ability to say, I'd love to know more help me understand more dimensions, right? Things like that. Um, the, uh, so, so they do a lot of that type of work. They have a very broad aperture as they are looking at the future. So they're not just looking at 
Again, the usual suspects in terms of their competitors, they're not looking at the usual sort of nearly adjacent um, technologies and research areas. They go really broad. Um, and they're trying to look for where there are changes. So they're very good at mapping and understanding forces of change, which is a skill that you have to hone. It doesn't just come naturally. You've got to intentionally do it. There's also a way for people to, um, uh, for everybody to participate. So the other thing I, I see in a lot of companies is that the foresight function, so thinking about the future, oftentimes this does not report into strategy. So you've got your strategy folks who are really just doing three to five year planning, sometimes less than that. And um, they don't have the skill set that I have, you can learn, but you have to learn it. Doesn't Scenario planning isn't like writing a bunch of cool stories. So what they do is they tend to have young people um, or interns do some sort of cool hunting or like looking for trendy things. And They've got no training. They, they, you know, what's happening on social media or who's doing what on TikTok. Um, and they use that and then they kind of have a, a loosey-goosey way of doing scenario planning and they wonder why the future doesn't show up the way that they thought it would. Um, anyway, so you have to practice this. Uh, the the uh, analog to this, of course, is BlackBerry, which for a time was making great technology, but they were... Um, no longer hungry. They didn't think about disruption. And there were lots of people in the organization, I know because I talked to them, who were saying, hey, haptic devices, hey, MP3s, Napster, we should be looking at this stuff. And if you were to go back in time, like I wouldn't have known that the iPhone was coming, but I could have absolutely told you that our phones would do more than send office messages and calendars and stuff. Um, so BlackBerry just wasn't methodically doing the work. Um, so we have a couple of interesting questions from Twitter. And the first one is from Chris Peterson. Asks a really interesting question. He says, is there a pattern of uh, culture and a pattern at, of bias at work with shaping those companies that are thinking forward into the future versus those that are more incremental or really focused on their P&Ls. This is the middle ground, right? So you can't take your eye off that P&L um, and you've got to continually, continually think about projections, but you have to be open to more variability. Um, we, we worked with a company two years ago whose financial projections were you used to be spot on and suddenly weren't. And the short end of the story is it had to do with um, the length of their supply chain and the fact that they had made a lot of assumptions. Um, they, they didn't have complete control over all of the variables in that supply chain. And that supply chain, um, because margins, managing the margins in this company were very important, um, they just kept going tighter and tighter and getting, you know, through efficiencies, which left at the end of the day, no room for anything to go wrong. And the kinds of things in their case that could go wrong were geopolitical changes that may pop up overnight, um, climate change issues, things having to do with uh, transportation. Um, they just never accounted for those things. And so we, we saw the brittleness. Um, and in their case, the biases had to do with process. 
Um, they just they they weren't willing to accept the fact that they would have to introduce uncertainty into their calculations. Once they figured that out and everybody was okay with it, now they're doing great. Um, so so sometimes the bias exists within the organization that exists is um, our process has always worked, therefore it will always work. You know. We have another interesting question from Twitter, and this is from Florent M. Hirwa. I hope I'm pronouncing your name. And he is in Kigali, Rwanda. So that's interesting too. And Florent asks, what are some applications of smart contracts outside the creative industry? Here's what I see happening with smart contracts. I see people who are very creative and people who are especially people in the innovation space, they're coming up with all kinds of clever ideas that are really interesting um, that never land well within the organization because nobody sees an immediate use case or an immediate business case. And then what winds up happening is there's no prototyping. Um, so there's a ton of options that range from digital ID systems. I mean, you could kind of argue that a lot of these digital passports, uh, vaccine passports are kind of a smart contract in spirit. Um, so ranging from uh, digital IDs for the purpose of traveling again someday, um, but also if, we're, if it's true that we're moving into digital realms in new ways and we've got, you know, uh, new ways of interacting with, with each other, then we're going to need new ways to authenticate ourselves. Um, and so I think that's the authentication and trust pieces of a smart contract are probably greater hold greater weight than just about anything else. There's some obvious use cases right now in, you know, remote. Um, we, we refinanced our house because the interest rates were pretty great. And uh, a lot of that was done using smart contract systems. Um, and then, of course, there's a whole other piece of this, which is finance. And, um, you know, settlement trading and settlements, the settlement side of trading is trying to get to faster and faster uh, time frames, you know, fractions of fractions of fractions of a second. Um, and as some of this fractional ownership models, uh, investment models, I meant, and um, things like NFTs and fractional NFT models, you know, th that's another interesting avenue as well. We have another really interesting question from Twitter. And to me, this is a very practical question. And that question is from again from Arsalan Khan, and he says, "Any thoughts on cryptocurrencies and especially things like uh, Dogecoin and others that we should be looking at?" We know that fiat currencies are probably gonna. We know that there's a lot of movement. There there has been for a while in Singapore and in China. China is officially now launching some version. Um. There's, uh, I also lived in China when there were two bank issued currencies and that was kind of annoying. Um, but, uh, you had to re remember what was what it was physical paper at that point. Um, you know, I think until it is, uh, I, I actually think this is a huge opportunity for somebody, for some large organization somewhere. Um, the concept of a wallet is still beyond the grasp of many people. Uh, and in the United States, this is not necessarily true of other countries, but you would think that contactless payments, meaning uh, you don't have to pull your 
your credit card out of your wallet or cash. You can just touch a device and pay. You would think that that has hit some form of critical mass and it hasn't. It's still low double digits. Like not, it's like 10% of transactions. It's a very, very low number. Um, so and part of that has to do with people. But part of that has to do with the slow rate of changeover in all of the businesses, the places where you would use that currency, that money. Um, takes them a long time to make the terminal change. And if you're in a situation where you've got inventory or insurance, it's not as simple as just changing the terminal and, and making it work. There's a lot of handshakes on the back end that have to happen. Here's why I mention this. Because it's not enough to have cryptos. Um, you have to be able to use them. You have to, you have to translate that into a system where you can receive something in return. So I think we're probably looking at a, at a transition to something and whether that's country like fiat backed cryptos per country or one global crypto, which I think is probably unlikely, but you never know. Um, or, or, Eastern and Western hemisphere, you know, China backed and US backed and European backed and, you know, Africa backed or something like that. Um, I think we're in a transition period. Um, if the question was like, which one should you hold? Um, I will not answer that question. <laughs> but as far as the long term trend goes, from, from what you're saying, it seems like there's an almost inevitable march, but it's going to take a long time because of just the weight of corporate processes and in every area that need to adapt. It's to some extent it's that, but I'm just looking at like, so my husband's an eye doctor and he switched over from his old terminal to a new terminal because he wanted to get the newer system thinking that like how, and he's way more into technology than I am. Um, and so he was like, well, how, how hard could this be? I'm an engineer by training. Um, turns out real hard <laughs> because the uh, the medical record system and the insurance system didn't do the right handshake to the terminal. It was this nightmare, and he had to. He tried for a month, and he finally just gave up um, and went back to the old system, which for a time was not doing contactless payment, even though he wanted to. So. I'm just highlighting this because I think sometimes people like to blame big organizations or big institutions as the problem. And I think in this case, the problem is um, a extremely diffuse system with many different types of ways to, to take money. As we finish up, how do you net all of this out for CIOs who are responsible for making technology purchasing decisions that address current immediate problems, but they also want success in the long term for themselves and their organizations and their customers. I think the biggest place where a lot of these decisions, again, I'm, my observation um, is in the cloud, right? So a lot of companies pre-COVID did not, I think, prioritize digital transformation the way they should have. Um, they're, they're a little late to the party. And now a lot of decisions are being made under duress. Um, so. If you're in a situation where those decisions are being made under duress, uh, you're going to have to figure out how to navigate that because uh, there's a lot at stake as you're making some of these decisions. You know, depending on the company, there's politics involved. There's uh, trying to match your decision cycle with the cadence of your CapEx expenditure cycles and board approvals and all that stuff. I don't have an answer. There's no one answer because um, that's going to depend on too many variables. But here's what I will say. 
Um, don't pit, wherever you can um, remind others that the decision cannot be made on a cost basis alone. You just can't. And nine times out of 10, that's what I see happening. It's cost basis or what you think you're going to get or um, confirmation bias. You know, X company is the biggest, therefore. Well, sometimes the biggest company isn't going to be the right fit for you. Um, so some of this is a little bit of matchmaking and patience. The other part of this, though, is you have to do two things at once. You have to think, you have to make decisions in the near term while assessing the long term. That is a challenging thing to do, and you're not going to do it unless you are intentionally forcing yourself to do it. Um, and you have to ask others in the C-suite to do it along with you. Should we take one last question that's just popped in from Twitter? And this is from Matt Carrasco. He, he says, uh, what is the long-term trend in instant communications, chat support? What needs to change to go from this is a great solution for us to turn for us to for support to convert it into something that can help sell, close and collect? So basically broadening chat support. And he adds is no code or low code solutions an answer to this. So in the realm of synthetic media, um, which is uh, deep fakes, um, but for different purposes. So this is generative content. Um, so chatbots are a version of that, but this is more holistic because we're talking about um, having an interaction with what looks very much like a person. Um, so the ability to do that exists today. And a couple of accelerants are um, in the works. So a year, I know we're all tired of staring at our Zoom screens, but um, all indications at the moment uh, would would say that this is here to stay because there's more flexibility, um, which means we're going to be looking at more than we were before, not all the time, but looking at people on screens. Um, if those people are synthetic, then that affords us some interesting new opportunities. There's a body of research research showing that if you can recall the details of somebody's personal, you know, details, uh, say their name, you know, all all of that interpersonal stuff that all of you know. Um, that, that they are more receptive to criticism, um, they are more vulnerable, potentially, they are more open um, to being coached. So imagine an AI um, hiring manager or an AI customer service rep or an AI trainer who was built uh, you know, for everybody at the company, but once deployed can learn about you and respond to you in real time. Um, you know, that is a game changer. So that's not tomorrow, but for all of these companies that are just dumping resources into chatbots, thinking that that's the end, what I would say is if you can convince everybody in the organization to see it as a beginning rather than the end, um, you, will, you will ride the next wave of disruption pretty well. All right. Amy Webb, thank you very, very much for taking your time to be with us here today. Thank you. Everybody, thank you for watching. What an interesting and fast show this has been. Before you go, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit the subscribe button and subscribe to our newsletter and tell your friends. Check out CXOTalk.com. We have great shows coming up and we will see you again next time. See you soon, everybody. Bye-bye.